0: podcast talks to podcast, and the topic is the COVID-19 vaccine. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. There's no greater supply chain challenge today than the necessity of manufacturing, distributing, and administering the vaccines for COVID-19. In fact, there's a podcast devoted entirely to the topic, on this episode, we speak with Priyanka Asera, creator and host of The Vaccine Challenge, a podcast series in which she speaks with logistics providers, pharmaceutical and healthcare industry experts, research scientists, and policymakers about what it will take to inoculate the world and defeat the virus once and for all. We'll talk about what she's learned from all those experts. And given that she's based in India, We'll discuss the rampant spread of the disease in that country and how it's coping. Here is my conversation with Priyanka Asera. Priyanka Asera, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. I'm so excited to chat with you, Rob.
0: You, of course, are also a veteran podcaster and you have a new or recent series called The Vaccine Challenge. I'm interested in hearing what drew you to this topic in the first place, to the point where you decided to devote an entire podcast series to this subject.
1: Absolutely. Hardly a veteran podcaster. (laughs) But I thought that this topic was really interesting because there was going to be, perhaps, the largest vaccine drive in the history of the world for a global pandemic. And this was something that was relevant regardless of which part of the world you were in. And it was a global problem because even if one country was doing okay with their vaccine distribution efforts, if that wasn't successful in every part of the world, it's not going to solve the problem. Being in supply chain, I realized that with the cold chain requirements and a bunch of other things that go into actually making an inoculation successful there were going to be a lot of challenges, depending on which regions we were talking about. And a lot of this work happens behind closed doors. So I thought it would be relevant, one, to highlight a lot of the work that happens in making this possible, but two, also as a common place for folks that are working on similar challenges to find other people that they can collaborate with in order to make this as speedy as possible for all of us.
0: So what kind of experts have you reached out to?
1: So it's a range of different people throughout the value chain. It's everyone from policymakers, government officials, regulators, pharma manufacturers, logistics providers that actually move the vaccine, companies that work with like scheduling software in order to work with point of end use where citizens that actually want the vaccine can use those systems. And then it's also consultants that monitor the space and think about or look at how this vaccine or how this pandemic is affecting supply chains in general and what is going to happen to the future of supply chains as a result of the pandemic.
0: Did you have any particular preconceptions about the virus and about the vaccine? Any ideas that you had before you started this that might have in some way been challenged or changed by the discussions you ended up having with these experts?
1: Absolutely. So I think when the vaccine came out, when the announcement came out back in November that there were going to be two vaccines at the time, at least, that were going to be approved. And then, of course, we had a few more afterwards. One of the things that was largely talked about was the temperature requirements these vaccines had, right? There was a lot of chatter about minus eight, uh, and then minus 70 in the case of Pfizer. That was easily one of the things that piqued my interest massively. I was like, that is going to be very, very difficult, definitely, because that is such an extreme requirement uh, to transfer vaccines through such a large distance. I think one of the things that was very quickly debunked for me was the fact that it's very simple technology in the form of dry ice that can make sure that these vaccines remain within that temperature range i was extremely surprised to find out that even if you don't have reefer trucks or refrigerated trucks you can actually pack dry ice into the packaging or into the storage boxes that go into the vaccines and that's actually sufficient to keep the vaccines within the temperature requirement over a span of five or six days by the time it gets to the end point of use, that was certainly something that i wasn't aware of i think the other thing was my understanding was that the cold chain capacity was extremely tight and it wouldn't be enough to transfer this volume of vaccine. turns out that's not the case either you know the vaccine is really small a lot of it can be packed in really small boxes and therefore doesn't require as many trucks as you would think it does. So, of course, depending on whether you have local production or not, if you have local production, which means that you're not reliant on air cargo capacity, you're actually okay as far as the supply chain is concerned. And there were, of course, a bunch more, but these were two that stood out very, very
0: quickly. Well, here in the United States, we certainly did require air freight because uh, much of the virus was manufactured outside the country. What about in India? Is it mostly domestic manufacturing? Because I know we are talking about sending the AstraZeneca vaccine to India. So how much of that is domestically sourced? So
1: that's actually not true. In the US, all of the manufacturing did happen in-house. And that was one of the things that the Operation Warp Speed required to be the case. Yes, a lot of raw material that's needed for the vaccine development to happen did have to come from abroad. But those were things that were talked about much, much early on. I think one thing that you'll find really fascinating is that when the clinical trials had kicked off, for most of these vaccines. In parallel, it was a decision made by Operation Warp Speed and the United States government that they were also going to, in parallel, start the manufacturing without knowing if that vaccine was going to be approved or not by the FDA. So this is obviously a huge financial risk that's taken on, which is only possible in this kind of public-private partnership, where it's like being fully aware of, like, one of the consequences could be that the vaccine would get rejected, in which case we would, the United States would have to dump all of the vaccines that were manufactured. That actually wasn't a problem because all of these arrangements were made even before the vaccines were developed, which was great. Coming to India, I think what's interesting is that in general, outside of a COVID world, about 60% of vaccine manufacturing in general happens in India. So it's definitely the vaccine capital of the world. But what happened with the COVID vaccine is that There was an embargo on vaccine raw materials that was placed by the United States, which means even though production happens here, it relies on a lot of raw materials from the U.S. and other parts of the world. And so it's absolutely heartening to see that one, that embargo is released, which means that they can actually get the raw materials and start production of the vaccine again. And then, of course, the conversation about uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine that could be imported for immediate years. Because I believe, as far as I understand, uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine hasn't received approval in the U.S. as it is. So it, it uh, can't I be used at the I moment. I believe anyway. not as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but when was the embargo lifted?
1: It was lifted about three or four days ago. It, oh, so like very no, recent. No more than four or five days. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. recent. And We're it's
0: definitely a, a result. Just for our listeners' benefit, we are having this conversation in late April. This is going to appear a few weeks after that, but just so they know that what we're talking about here calendar-wise. But pretty recent before our discussion. So you're saying that that embargo of raw materials hampered production, it, it stalled production of the vaccine in India?
1: Yes, absolutely. And just to give you an indication of how quickly things have happened, right? I had spoken with Carlo from Operation Wattspeed just two weeks ago, less than two weeks ago. And I remember the day that I had a chat with him, I had seen a tweet go out by the CEO of Serum Institute, which is the company, the AstraZeneca vaccine in India, asking for the embargo to be lifted. And that was one of the questions I asked. Carlo did mention, right, that, I mean, obviously, eventually, these are decisions made by the White House with advice given by the CDC. And at that point, it wasn't even lifted, right? The embargo was still in place, and this is less than two weeks ago. And then uh, talks were happening at the time. But of course, with the situation having gotten so much worse in the last few days in India, I believe the embargo was lifted just a few days ago.
0: What was the rationale for the embargo? Was it the thinking that the United States needed those raw materials themselves and couldn't afford to be exporting them? Or why were they blocking the the export of, of that material?
1: That's definitely something for the White House to speak on. But at the end of the day, obviously, this is a global challenge. But I fully understand that with that comes priorities, right? Like you want to make sure as a nation that you're able to get your citizens vaccinated first. And if you're going to need those raw materials, that's going to take precedence. Obviously, understandable. But then again, right, given the nature of the virus, if there is a deadly new strain in another part of the world which cannot be contained, that's devastating for the rest of the world because it's only a matter of time before spreads. It's absolutely some combination of obviously making sure that you do your bit for the global community, but also at the same time not at the cost of what your priority is as a country for your citizens.
0: Uh, Just to get very quickly back to the temperature control part of it, you said, of course, the individual cases could contain dry ice, but I had heard that there were instances of shortages of dry ice that made that difficult to obtain. Did you hear about that, or was that not an issue after all?
1: Yes, that's also another thing that's really interesting about the vaccine distribution space, right? Like what the challenges are keep changing and keep pivoting. In the beginning, there were supply constraints of the vaccine, which again is supply constraints in some parts of the world, not so much in other parts of the world. Similarly, with the dry ice, there was not enough production of dry ice because, again, this was something that was suddenly needed now in order to make sure that the vaccines were within the temperature requirement and there were no temperature excursions. What was amazing was that a lot of 3PL companies, a lot of logistics providers kind of stepped up and started producing dry ice. I believe UPS massively increased their production by a couple of hundred thousand pounds or something like that. And there were a lot of different companies that just repurposed existing factories that they have had to produce dry ice then what happened was with the dry ice, again, depending on what mode of transportation you're using, within, if you're moving, say, on an air cargo, there's only so much dry ice that legally can be on an airplane, which means that it's not the dry ice itself that's a problem, but because of dry ice that can be there on a flight, you can only move so many vials of vaccine. So again, that challenge kept shifting, but yes, production of dry ice was a problem initially, and then that was solved very quickly by just amping up production of dry ice by companies that don't necessarily do that otherwise.
0: I'm interested in lessons learned and the wisdom that you got from the various experts you've talked to about mistakes that were made in terms of, number one, distribution of the vaccine, and number two, then deciding how to assign it, who actually gets the vaccine. Whether that's in India, the United States, or anywhere else in the world, what did experts tell you about how things went wrong and how they might be corrected the next time this happens?
1: First of all, let's hope that there's no next time. Um, well, we, know there's going to, there's,
0: think, we definitely know there's going to be something coming up, whether it's this or something else. But yeah, it, there'll be some kind of crisis to deal with.
1: It's true. It's absolutely true. I, I think that was just wishful thinking on my part. <laughs> but I think what was really interesting is that back when COVID hit, and very quickly, all countries kind of went down that race of coming up with a vaccine as quickly as possible because that was the only thing that was... Possibly going to stop this. There were a lot of different risks that a lot of governments had to take on. So, one of the things that I mentioned earlier, for example, that happened in the US was massive financial risk was taken to start production and manufacturing of the vaccine even when the clinical trials were still going on, right? That obviously means potentially dumping millions and millions of vaccines that just wouldn't work. So that was one. But I think what was also interesting is that depending on how quickly countries acted, I think even before the vaccine came out or when they were in the late stages of production, different countries kind of booked their number of doses that they were going to buy from these companies. In terms of like how you decide which people would get it first, that was always a point of contention. Depending on what you're looking to optimize for, your distribution strategy would change accordingly. So, for example, and this is a conversation that is had, say, by the CDC and other equivalent regulatory bodies uh, across countries, is that are you looking to optimize for maximum number of people getting the vaccine or are you looking to optimize for least number of hospitalizations and deaths Or are you looking to optimize for something else, right? So if you're looking to optimize for least number of deaths and hospitalizations, then that means that you want to target the most vulnerable population, which is people with comorbidities and older people, because they're the ones that are unlikely to fight the vaccine off because of weaker immunity. If your objective is going to be as many vaccinations as possible, then you're just trying to get to a larger number, as opposed to if you're trying to optimize for least number of people getting COVID, then you're going to try to optimize and try to get the frontline workers and people working in Walmart and people that have exposure to a lot of people, you would then give them the vaccine first. And this was unprecedented territory for everyone, right? I think by and large, the consensus across most countries was that, hey, we want to make sure that we reduce the number of hospitalizations and deaths as much as possible, which means that even as COVID spreads to a lot of people... The idea is that hopefully it would spread to people that have the immunity to fight it off. That's been working out really well for a lot of countries because, of course, in the West, in the UK, certainly in the US, I believe we've reached almost like 50% vaccinations amongst the population, which is fantastic. What other countries didn't see coming, India is definitely an example of that, is that, number one, the population density is so much that only... About 7 or 8% of the population is vaccinated as of today, and this is late April. And now with the new strain, and this is anecdotal, I'm not sure what the exact numbers are, but it's targeting a lot of young people in a way that the previous strain didn't. No. It would be interesting to see what that means or if the approach changes. From the 1st of May, the vaccinations are opening up for all adults 18 plus in India, for example. Now with the vaccine shortages, only time is going to tell how that actually works out because of course, there's still a large population, even above the age of 45, that's not vaccinated yet for a bunch of different reasons. And so with what the countries grappling with it would be interesting to see if they shift their focus on actually getting younger population vaccinated first as opposed to older. Mm. But yeah, it's just been such a moving target.
0: Interesting that you can't optimize everything. Now, I, I had thought that the goal was to reach herd immunity, which is achieved, I, as I would assume, by uh, vaccinating the greatest number of people possible in the shortest possible time. But you're saying that isn't necessarily the right angle if you're looking for the people who are most... Risk of getting hospitalized from it, so uh, that that sounds like a huge challenge. Um, So, what is the situation in India right now? I mean, we hear that it's dire. Is there any sign of it coming under control?
1: It is absolutely dire, and I actually believe that the number of people that are getting COVID and the number of people affected are significantly larger than what you see in the media because. A lot of people just don't even or are not able to get tested for COVID for a bunch of different reasons. The way that second spikes have played out in other countries has, for the most part, been like this. The second wave have been deadlier than the first one. So that's hardly surprising. What is definitely shameful is the lack of preparation that the country had with the number of Like oxygen cylinders, for example, that would be required. I think that there was definitely a little bit of like a victory done, done like too soon. It was expected that we were done with, that this was behind us. And of course, that wasn't the case. A lot of stuff made it bad. A lot of stuff got the country to where we are now. But certainly there were a lot of large gatherings for multiple reasons that happened in February because people started thinking that we were done and the numbers Mm -hmm. were going down, we were okay. And that obviously wasn't the case. But definitely the lack of preparation on the part of the government is something that's been massively criticized. Hopefully in a few weeks, this would be behind us. There's definitely some heartening numbers that we're seeing, for example, in Bombay, which was, or Mumbai, which is where... The numbers had started peaking a few weeks ago. That was one of the worst hit cities. And now we've seen that the numbers have gone down by less than a third of what it was before. So the hope is that in a few weeks' time, we would reach herd immunity. But definitely the next few weeks are going to be really, really complex and they're going to be really challenging. And I'm in Bangalore at the moment. And the best I can do myself too is just be cooped in and stay in this hotel room and actually not be exposed. Because again, what this means is I'm a relatively healthy young individual, and if I put myself out there and require a hospital bed, then it means that I'm taking it away from someone that actually really, really needs it.
0: The podcast is called The Vaccine Challenge, is it not? That is the correct title? Yes. How many episodes are you contemplating? Are you still producing it?
1: Yes, absolutely. So we've done about 11 episodes so far, and the idea was to make this a very global dialogue, It's just bringing different perspectives depending on A, which region or which part of the world and what your specific challenges are. And then again, right, like the idea is because this is something that we have to achieve globally for this to be behind us, because if that's not the case, then it just keeps being a liability for other countries that might be fully vaccinated too. And we're just following where the challenges are and what they are. So the initial episodes were very much about dry ice manufacturing, about cold chain logistics. But then now... The conversation is a lot more about like, okay, scheduling, like what are the challenges there? Like how do you overcome that? Next week I'm going to be having someone talking about the challenges in Africa, for example, the way that this works, obviously, is different countries again have completely different challenges, right? Like in some cases where the U S for example, there's a lack of a centralized system, which means that like scheduling appointments is difficult. Oh, for example, yeah. <laughs> Chicago alone, I see a relatable laugh. So you've obviously experience that yourself. But like Chicago, for example, alone has six different scheduling systems that they use, which means it's just really hard to demand, plan and forecast how many vaccines would be required in any specific health center. Canada, for example, is grappling with the fact that they don't have local production, which means that they're reliant on international cargo coming in only after which they can put any plans in place because anything up until then means nothing until it actually hits Canadian shores. Mm -hmm. And then the problem in India, obviously we've spoken at length, is everything that's happening and at the moment like controlling COVID is as important as actually getting the vaccinations out and done. And then in countries like Africa, for example, there are a lot of creative things that happen because they're not as well resourced as some of the countries in the West. And they come up with fascinating, different creative ways of making sure that they are able to distribute the vaccine as far and wide as possible. So until 7 billion people get vaccinated, this is going to continue being a challenge, or at least until we reach critical mass. And we're not even like a seventh of the way there, or mm-hmm. just about.
0: Where can listeners find the podcast?
1: You can find the podcast on all podcast channels, Spotify, Apple Music, etc.
0: Priyanka, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us to talk about these incredibly current and vital topic and the fact that you've devoted an entire podcast to it is such a great thing It's so educational and can really help to advance knowledge in this area thank you very much for being with me really appreciate it
1: thank you so much for having me rob i really enjoyed this conversation and here's hoping that all of us can get vaccinated soon and our world can start the healing process
0: That was my conversation with Priyanka Asera, creator and host of the Vaccine Challenge podcast. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain.